Yeah, thanks very much, Carol. And, um, and thank you for um, allowing us to do this event, which is really quite topical in the sense that um, Joseph ha has had a long relationship both with Freud and Wittgenstein in his work. Um, and, you know, he, he, it's, he lives now in London, uh, so we're very lucky to have him here. Um, he has had a, also quite a long relationship with the Freud Museum in Vienna. And um, I think it was, um, oh, probably back in, was it back in the 90s or something when you first did a, a, a project? 89. 89, yeah. I barely graduated from high school, actually. All right, sure. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, and uh, yeah, jo Joseph has, has a very kind of um, uh, sort of prestigious relationship with, with conceptual art. Um, in his early 20s, he was, uh, he, he was actually nominated um, by Marcel Duchamp. Um, Let's not go into the gory details, please. Okay. Right. <laughs> you want to go into that yourself. Yeah, I'd do a better job of it. That's right. uh, and um, and he's also recently curated a show at the Freud Museum in Vienna, which which included Gavin's work. And so there's um, there's a lot of references to to to, to both of these great philosophers. Uh, in in um, well, no, Freud wasn't a philosopher. He claims he was a scientist, but there we go. Uh, he was actually an, an artist. There's a lot of documentation now. Yeah, well, we get onto that later, <laughs> what you think of Freud as an artist, which is another interesting thing. So um, I think we're going to start off by Joseph actually showing you some uh, some of the slides uh, of his project, recent project at the Freud Museum in, in Vienna, in Bergstrasse. So um, do you want to... Yeah, I'll start. Out? Yeah. That is what I'm here for. Um, well, I would... Every year, every year I would be, inv I'm invited by the Sigma Freud Museum in Vienna to give a lecture of both the relationship between art and psychoanalysis to psychoanalysts. And it's interesting, people often ask, what's it like talking to a whole room full of psychoanalysts? And I always say, they're very good listeners. <laughs> but the truth is that I began, I started a foundation there. I guess it was, the uh, 50th anniversary of the death of Freud, they were going to do a big event at the Freud Museum in Vienna. And um, they wanted, uh, and it came up that I'd been doing this work through the 80s about Freud, and they asked me whether I could do something for this occasion. So they gave me the new apartment they just acquired next to the, to the um, former uh, office of Freud, which is now the museum. And in there was, this is where Freud and... Um, uh, and Anna had a, an office, and it was a very much part of the Freud history. And so I was given this whole place, and I will show you photos of it. Um, so I had a great opportunity. I had been working at that point on Freud for about 10 years, and I found myself working in Freud's bedroom. And I said, you know, if I don't stop with Freud after this, I'll be doing it the rest of my life. So that was this was really my last work with Freud. This is a paper, my last lecture, which I'm not giving, don't worry, but I, there are quotes at the beginning by other people, very short ones, in the middle and in the end, and I wanted to read them to set a tone to what I'm going to show you. It begins with a, a quote from Maurice Merleau-Ponty. The meaning of a work of art or of a theory is as inseparable from its embodiment as the meaning of a tangible thing, which is why meaning can never be fully expressed. The highest form of reason borders on reason. 
and this from Wittgenstein. What is inexpressible, what I find mysterious and am not able to express, is the background against whatever I could express has its meaning. So that was that. Two quotes from Nietzsche. It's fun reading just the quotes and not bothering with the part I wrote. (laughs) A belief, however necessary it may be for the preservation of the species, has nothing to do with truth. Second one. We deny end goals. If existence had one, it would have been reached. Gilles Deleuze. Thinking is not innate, but must be engendered in thought. The problem is not to direct or methodologically apply a thought which pre-exists in principle and in nature, but to bring into being that which does not yet exist. There is no other work. All the rest is arbitrary, mere decoration. To think is to create. There is no other creation. And then I end... Finally, with a quote by a woman, Elizabeth Gross, who's brilliant, and you should all know of her. She's an architectural theoretician. If the goal of the intellectual is not simply the production of knowledge, but more precisely, the production of concepts of thought, and if the disciplines, including architecture and philosophy, function to thwart thought, to stifle and prevent exploration, to inhibit the production of the new, then the function of the radical intellectual, whether philosopher or architect, is to struggle against whatever, in discourse and in practice, functions to prevent thought. It is as if the forces of knowledge and power cannot tolerate difference, the new, the unthought, the outside, and do all they can to suppress it by forcing it to conform to expectation, to fit into a structure, to be absorbable, assimilable, and digestible without disturbance, or perturbation. Okay, so that was just kind of a appetizer. We'll start now. Or maybe we'll start now. How's it go? Techie. <laughs> there we go. That was the one I pushed, but not working. <laughs> Point it over, so. If I can't walk, I can't do this? What? Just sort of point it over in that. Oh, that's sort of silly of me, isn't it? Well, how am I supposed to look at what I'm having on there then? It's <laughs> a great arrangement, folks. <laughs> so, this is a series of Freud work, installation kinds of Freud works. I did smaller things too, but, uh, but they used work with architecture. And, um, the only text I might read by me before later on you'll be booing, but at the beginning I can get away with it. Um, and it's about this series of works. What do you think? Oh, well, let's go ahead now. We have a cluster of contingencies. What's that? Oh, you don't, oh yeah, you want to see work, do you? So old fashioned of you, Sarah. Keep, keep, keep that up, you'll get a job at the culture office. We have a cluster of contingencies, a text which represents an order of arbitrary forms which make a systemic sense believable while they teach belief. The words are meaningful contingently in relation to the sentence and the sentence to the paragraph. 
the paragraph from the psychology, psychopathology, sorry, of everyday life by Sigmund Freud is meaningful in relation to the exegesis of Freud's work. The use of Freud's work in this context is contingent on understanding its use by the author of Zero and Not, beginning with Cathaxis in 1981, as a kind of conceptual architecture, a ready-made order that, while anchored to the world, provides as a theoretical object a dynamic system. I can put on another one. This text, though, is also just a device, a surface, a skin. There is another syntax, also anchored to the world, which is the architecture of rooms, which also orders this work. While the order remains there, the gaps and omissions, the entrance, the exits, the views in and out, that which puts the work into the world, rather than disrupt the order, clarifies and qualifies the room, the world, and art, that which is not, but within this order is. The cluster of arbitrary orders has also made a made order which unifies it beyond the unification given to it by the architecture of the room itself. It begins with a counting off of the paragraphs, repeated until the walls are full, and that constellation which constructs it um, as it erases suggests one thing, a field of language itself, present while removed. This just absence presented in its language reduced to words, makes the texture of reading itself an arrival at language, an arrival which constructs, there it is, which constructs other orders, ones that blind as they make themselves visible. The numbers separate the paragraphs as they unify the work. This provides the field in which the color coding systemically underscores repeatedly the fragments that make up the unitary paragraph, a made-up order which constructs or deconstructs the paragraphs differently than the other order of the world, which makes the paragraph with sentences. The difference, and differently too, than the order which makes rooms out of windows, doors, changing ceilings, and those walls which presume the lives which would be lived within them. There's several, each one of these should have about eight photographs. So I just give one photo, give you a kind of sample of, of the whole work. So it's, this is a well-known show that Jan Hoot did in which artists from all over the world were invited to, to come into homes in Ghent, Belgium, from very aristocratic ones to student dwellings to everything. And I was given the, the house of a psychoanalyst. I asked for one and I got it. Um, but the, even the room where the, where the uh, therapy took place um, uh, was filled. Uh, it became part of his um, treatment. A lot of things happened. If he gets keeping. What? If he gets keeping. It's permanent, yeah. Although the house is worth... A lot. I don't know if the kids are going to hang on to it or not. You never know. Art's like that. This is a Leo Castelli, which was my gallery in New York for from the age of 24 until Leo died when he was in his 90. And he uh, and this was a, a space called Wonto. No, called I don't know what it was called. It was on Green Street, and uh, it was his big space. Can't say too much. 
This went around, of course. So they were doing a show in um, this museum in um, Mexico City in honor of Leo Castelli, and they wanted this work of mine from the Whitney. So I did another work with some of the leftover rolls of wallpaper. Um, and um, that was fun. So this is the, um, I, I made it here to, to Vienna to the, what's called the Cradle of Psychoanalysis, where his offices were. And um, this, this, of this one I'm putting in um, more slides so you can see what I did there. I mean, the, the interesting things where you, like Freud's bedroom, you realize that off of his, Freud's bedroom was where his sister-in-law's bedroom was. So you realize if she had to get up in the middle of the night to have a pee, she had to walk through the bedroom of Freud and his wife. Little things you learned, you know? Fascinating. And the other funny thing was I was working on those. I had the keys to Freud's apartment, and all my Viennese friends were wanting to go there with their girlfriends and wives on dates. It was one of the weirdest experiences. They, oh, come on. Just one night. Can I have the key? <laughs> I'm trying to make this as interesting as I can. Give me a... <laughs> okay. These are... So I've done this a few times for retrospectives in various countries. So that looks like a repetition. It is, I know, isn't that fascinating? But this is the same thing with, I began, I invited in other artists uh, to donate work, and I began to create a, a collection of contemporary art for, in honor of Sigmund Freud. Uh, I did that at his 50th anniversary. And so this was the Franz West uh, couch, and... Um, this is uh, Kabakov. Georg Harold, Pierpaolo Cazzolare, Avido means avid, of course, in English, Baldessari. These are just some of the people who, who are friends of mine who, at my request, would donate work. And then we began a, really quite a serious collection. And for a while it was stored in the Museum of um, Fine Arts in Vienna, and now that we have a whole wing upstairs that, we, that the collection has showed in. So it's permanent in the... In it's, per, it's a permanent foundation, yeah. So then the 70, 25 years go by, and God knows, where did those years go? But anyway, they invite me again to do the 75th anniversary. I think this is the closest steady job as I've ever had, right? And um, so, uh, but it's, it was, I had 180 artists. I do these, I should step back. I do installations in which I appropriate not just texts, which people expect from me, but I appropriate the works of other artists as, as elements that construct another meaning, which is my show, my installation. So they're called curated installations. But I'm, I ain't a curator, folks, and I never wanted to be. So this is the 21st house, the Museum of Contemporary Art in Vienna.
You want to get everything in one night? There's Damien Hurst. You know him. I actually put Damien Hurst in a show of mine. It was a great moment for all of us. <laughs> what the sausages? What? Yeah, no, that the one in the middle. No, the sausages. <laughs> you know, there's another local favorite. And look at that guy. So I put it here before he put it next door. There you go. There's another successful. This remains a secret. (laughs) Susan Heller? Susan, are you here? And I put it in just in case. (laughs) I'm no fool. Clegg and Gutman, former students of mine from New York who um, have done library uh, works. They've done a lot of works, portraits, etc., that I've often and always really supported. So this is showing... In again, the collection of the foundation. So you see Sherry Levine's, this is in Anna Freud's room in the, uh, at Burgas in 19, because, um, it's a, it's a, a work which is a, employs a pair of shoes, child's shoes. So I put that in Anna Freud's room as she worked with children. I mean, or the original. This is the Kabakov again. So that room, this is just a selection of some of the smaller, more individual works I did based on Freud throughout the 80s. This one's called Fetishism Corrected, and it's um, a page uh, from uh, his book that Freud hand-corrected. And so those are the hand-corrections in Neon, etc., this is, this is a work called Hypercathexis, and it, has, it had to do with fragments of language that's no longer readable. This is French from about the 14th century. This is um, the work on the end is a work a series called Cathexis, and I went I, well, I had a retrospective at the, the Staatsgalerie in Stuttgart, and I went into the collection and chose paintings that I liked and essentially reproduced them upside down and put a text which was inside out. And um, this was before Basilis. So I, I uh, was um, shocked when Basilis came out. I mean, I was being ironic about the return to painting in the early in the early 80s, and that's what I get for that. Perhaps he was being ironic. Hmm? Perhaps he was being ironic. Yeah, without knowing it. That's the good part. <laughs> I happened, I, I have reasons to go to Vienna, as you can see. The, um, there was a, a time for the 100th anniversary of, of Wittgenstein, and the Vienna Secession, which his father was one of the founders, but it was essentially a museum run by, by artists, and all the, the board was dominated by artists, and quite rare, um, to give artists power, it's like something unheard of. And, um, so, 
they came to me, they had the, the philosophers were fighting over Wittgenstein, you know, because there are different currents within the thinking. And so they thought, well, let's step out of that and invite an artist, appropriate, somebody who reported to know Wittgenstein. They were inviting me to give talks at the Wittgenstein Congress. And, but I just kind of left that behind in my uh, late teens, really, when I was really passionate about it. So I just didn't want to go back to it. But they invited me to do this show, and it sounded like a really great thing to do. So I accepted, and I did, and I did it. Um, so this is the Vienna Secession, and I did a play between the early and the late, which is not quite um, as believed, believed in by the Wittgensteinians anymore, but it was very good binary oppositional mode um, structure for me to do what I do. And... Um, so this is the work of other artists. The only artist who demanded to have his work removed was Carl Andre. Well, Carl, I've been fighting for decades because he, he claimed to hate conceptual art, right? And he said, if you did it, I know exactly what the show's about. So, But that was okay. So it went here, and then later it went to the Palais de Beaux-Arts in Brussels, which was twice as big. And I found out what museums go through to borrow works. It's unbelievable, because unless you're a museum that has a collection that they can come back to you later and borrow something of yours, they don't want to do the paperwork, they don't want the expense and the bother, right? And But, I mean, I knew some of these directors, so I could call them and harangue them, and so I was able to get things. But it was really a big job. It's in Flemish and French, appropriate for Belgium. That's it. Not so bad. No? I thought you only had a few, but that was quite a lot. Um, Yeah, what I wanted to ask you was... um, What? I, I really, I don't want this kind of question. Can we, can we just carry on with the, with the conversation and you ask us questions oh, afterwards? Exhibition. Yeah. Exhibition yeah. Hmm? Um, it was a second part two. To... Okay, Joseph. Was that confusing? Is that what you're trying to say me in a polite form? I know what it's like here in the UK. What? <laughs> okay, let, let's start off with... You know, back in 1969, you, you, you wrote that thing about uh, art after philosophy. 68, actually. But, yes, okay. go ahead. Okay. It was published in 69. Okay, good. Okay. Um, and I, I wanted to, to, to ask you to just explain about that, I, that whole idea. I know, I know it could Oh, you give me ages. three to four minutes to do that, do you? Well, well no. I will briefly, you know, for people that might not understand that idea that philosophy... You know, the artist has taken on the role of, of, of a philosopher. Because I know even you, you actually studied philosophy after that, didn't you? In, in, in New York. Uh, before it, after it, during. Uh, yeah, or whatever. I, and, I, and then I want to ask Gavin what he thinks about that. Yeah, I'm beginning to feel guilty. Huh? Well, well, no. Tell, do you want to tell the audience a little bit about, how, do you, you really believe in that, that idea? Yeah, even more actually. Uh-huh. Because we know that certain things happen. 
that um, religion, um, shall we say, died on the vine to a great. Philosophy ended up being an academic subject uh, that most courses on philosophy are the history of philosophy, right? Very little. The French had a great period of creative theory. They didn't even call it philosophy. Philosophy in the sense of Hegel, Kant. You couldn't. You can't, in fact. <laughs> so um, what's happened is as science increasingly became our religion, from any anthropological point of view, we believe in the doctor, the physicist. We believe in scientists. They have the skin of reality, right? And um, you go to your, your, you don't go to your your rabbi, your priest, your reverend to give you the, what the meaning of life is, really. You go to your scientists. And um, but as science, unfortunately, is an impoverished religion. It has no, doesn't answer the big questions about life and death. About so as a result. We began to see the rise of something called art in the, 20, in the modern period. And more and more, um, artists were taken from the horizon of mass culture, which forms our consciousness, and making works about it. But works which could be approved by both Nietzsche and Wittgenstein because they don't speculate. They just show. And with that, artists began to, um, I feel, uh, more and more replace, without calling it philosophy, replace what philosophical work had been, except we take from mass culture, and we, and we reflect on what this means to understand our world, about the meaning in our world. And so um, that's why artists have become, extreme, I think, incredibly important. Also, we have to understand... The people with power in our society, shall we say, the politicians and the businessmen, are dedicated to short-term goals. Businessmen must have a profit at the end of the day. Politicians have to somehow maintain the power. It's the intellectuals, it's the writers, it's the artists who are committed to long-term goals in our culture. And we're the stable part of this society, not those other guys. Mm -hmm. And they are guys, usually, I have to admit. What about the idea of, of, of not needing to have, a, have a, an object of art? Have a which? To, to have art objects, objects as such as art. Because, well, art is about, we work with, we work with meaning artists. We don't work with forms and colors and objects and, you know, I mean, we, anything can be put in play to construct meaning. <laughs> it doesn't really matter what it is. So it's not about objects. It's not about dematerialization of the object, as Lucy Lepard said, because it's not about objects. So what it's about meaning production. What, Gavin, what do you think about that? Oh, yes, yeah, speak up, Gavin. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think you probably do need an object. Uh, it, it's just, it seems to me that... You need also, something, but I wouldn't call it an object. We also know that it could be anything. So it's an object, but it could be anything. So okay. It's kind of like, it's a drill. It could be anything, and it could be an object, it's equally. Floating, it's a floating signal. Yeah. But we need a thing to look at. But, well, we need well, something we, coming also, into our... Yeah. To, but also, like, somehow you need to sort of objectify it in order to see it at a distance from yourself, in order to, to kind of be able to see something that you can posit yourself, like, against, something to sort of pitch against, something mm -hmm. to kind of 
I mean, in a way, it seems to me that art is 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 something that's useful because it leaves markers in the sand, so that you can so that you can somehow get some sort of sense of yourself in relationship to those markers. It, and and in some sense, that is because. Naturally, I think that people are philosophers. I think like yeah. human beings are philosophers. They're all searching for possibly what the hell that we're doing on on the planet. What what is it that this? What is it? What what are we? And uh, and I think that art is is something that can can take up some sort of take up some of the slack within that process of that exploration. Well, the first thing I think we ask of a work of art is that it's authentic. When we go to a museum, the power of art from another time is that it was authentic for that time. And um, this is, I think, something that remains, really remains the case uh, con- consistently. And that's why it's impossible to do but, art, but another well, period in a certain way that <laughs> looks like old-time religion. It doesn't work. But, but I also think that very much now, like, and certainly for me, I mean, my art is very much... Based in the idea that possibly it is not real, and that you know that it is inauthentic, that 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 it's very, well, very there, those terms are quite separate. Authentic and real, by the way, I think. Well, real is you know. I mean, there is. I, th- I don't think your work is real either, but I do think it's authentic. Okay, um, but there are these sort of tracks, aren't there, to do with to do with um, reality. Um, authentic, authentic, something that's authentic, something that's real, something that that somehow like like, I, yeah, I suppose authorship is something that requires this relationship to a kind of uh, to a, a a mentality almost. To a, so, are, to are a you person. saying that an idea isn't enough? It has to have an object to it. You want to get a fight going? To, 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 to it. <laughs> you know. You, if, if, if you just had a brilliant it. idea about in. a work of art, what about what about Gavin's slides? Can you, can you whack them on? Yeah. Um, do, 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 if, if you had a brilliant idea about presenting a work of art, you couldn't do it without having an object to relate it to. Because surely the whole thing about what, what Joseph is, is proposing is, is that you know the, the, you know like that there's, there's not necessarily a need to, to, to have an object to. To give art power, the idea is more important. I think what we, I think we're, we're sort of arguing about this idea of the object is, is it, it doesn't necessarily materially have to be there, but it, it has to be a. Sort I mean, of, I work with objects tangi- too. It I has to be a sort of tangible. Has to be a sort of a tangible thing. So if you can, if you can, um, if you can create. I mean, there was a, a wonderful story, um, which I, which I'm now. Uh, stealing from Marina Abramovich. Sorry. Um, she was talking about an artist, Gino de Dominicis, an G- Italian artist. Gino de Dominici. De Dominici. Dominici. Gino de Dominici. <laughs> um, and the story goes um, that apparently, like, late night in a bar, he's, um, he's sitting talking to a collector a bit down and his luck doesn't know quite what to do with himself. It gets very, very late and... Uh, and then they strike a bargain where the um, where Gino sells this guy an invisible sculpture, um, and the guy gives him a check on the spot. And um, and a few months uh, go by, and then a phone call uh, comes into the collector, and uh, it's uh, it's about the sculpture, and it's the transport company, 
Um, they're phoning up because they want to know when he's going to be in because they're going to deliver the sculpture. And, uh, and then uh, they, they organise a date when he can be at, at, at home. And uh, then the transport company arrive um, with their full regalia on. Um, they, uh, they open the back of the, the truck, a big truck, uh, and then they, they sort of like, they move, slowly move this invisible sculpture out, and then they wheel it into the door, the front door, and then they say, where would you like it? Um, and they say, I'll put it over there, and they say, well, really sorry, but it's quite sensitive to light. So, so then they say, and then they basically, then they get two works, and then they basically take the works down, and they rehang them slightly further apart, um, and then they install the sculpture in the place, um, and then they leave. And uh, so in a way, you know, there's an object there. We can't see it, but it was made through, through a sort of sensitivity, through a sensibility, through a kind of, through, through a, through a kind of, through literal and sheer kind of, like, concept. Um, Gina was my best friend in Rome. I spent 25 years, whenever I'd come to Rome, so I would... Hmm? Was this, is this a true story? Yeah, I, no, I, I backed up into it one day. It was is terrible. This a, is this a true story? Is this an apocryphal story? It's a, of course it's a true story. Oh, it's a true story, thank you. <laughs> and that but he story. was quite... I have a lot of stories, but unfortunately, yeah. we're doing all right. But, I mean, you, you use a lot of objects in... in, in of what, course, so because it's not about the object. It's about the production of meaning. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and what, what do you think about the idea of... Um, I know you've had a history of doing doing works with museums, you know, um, the Gardner Museum in Boston and then the play of The Unmentionable, which was at Brooklyn, which was a right. fantastic show, where, where you took objects from their collection, but you, 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 you just put really, with yeah. quotations and things like that. I mean, do you think that's a ver- really valid exercise? Well, it is, because I'm taking the works that are in the museum and I'm utilizing them to produ- produce another kind of meaning mm-hmm. than probably the one the museum was framing it with, right? Yeah. Um, so that's, you know, it's like, it's, it's always, if you're going to communicate, it'll have some kind of physical dimension, like the noises I'm making right now that affect your middle ear. You know, there's no object, but, of course, it's, you know, even your middle ear, Gavin. And my front ear and my back ear as well. <laughs> I've so, heard that about you. So, so Gavin... Um, <laughs> I mean, you know, coming back to objects, and like, you know, obviously we're trying to get away from objects, but, you know, one of the things about the Freud Museum, which which I find so fascinating, is that ultimately, like, it's more about his his objects. It's sort of like, like, the the museum exists to kind of become this this kind of three-dimensional cabinet to, to sort of, like, house these objects. And it is also interesting that, that there is a sort of... A, a mystical factor element that's added to the collection because, you know, as we know, at that point, historically, it was really fashionable to collect small kind of trophies and objects. Oh, right, the, the Wunderkammer. Yeah. So, so it, it, it was just literally like cultural activity to do what he did. Um, and really, like, seriously speaking, it's not like the, you know, it's not the, you know, the knock-me-down collection of, of this sort of period. But, it is a collection that still survives. Well, it's together personal. It meant things to him. And also, yeah. it's yeah. a collection by, and it's a collection of Sigmund Freud. And, and so the objects themselves take on this sort of like super, super kind of extra potency. 
uh, uh, you know, and you, you find yourself listening to stories about how he'd be sitting on his, his chair listening to someone talking, and he'd be looking at his desk, um, or even going round to his desk, and then talking through the Chinaman sitting on the desk as a kind of conduit to deliver the message to the patient who's lying on the couch. Um, and these kind of like weird, sort of almost like faith, a faith in the, in the sculptures, and almost like that the sculptures of the objects start becoming like a crystal ball for him in terms of the way that he, he uses and analyzes people. So he's starting to use his sculptures or his, his, um, his objects um, as a kind of uh, soothsaying, uh, a kind of, as a cipher. Yeah, because for, I, for think, I, I think for him, I don't think, about... he, I don't think he appreciated so much the aesthetic beauty of those objects. I think he, he, he you know, was interested in for their kind of archaeological reference, you know, to the past. and The meaning... And, and, they... and, and archetypal kind of thing. Conjured yeah. up, really. Which, which says a lot, really, for Freud's kind of view of art, to a certain extent. I mean, how do you feel about... Um, Joseph, you... Well, he, had, well, he, was, he approached a lot of things... Yeah. Um, as a scientist, because th- we know of the things that were published, and those were scientific journals and books that he wrote. Mm-hmm. Um, his work on, uh, you know, on Leonardo, for example, was one-dimensional in a sense from his perspective in terms of his interests. I don't know that that's all he thought about the work of Leonardo, you know, um, but it's still useful. It was useful at the time. It's still useful to some people now. But there's this idea that he had a sort of ambivalent view of artists. On one, one count, he thinks they're great for, for having, um, you know, extrasensory kind of knowledge of, 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 you know, people's minds and how to express them. And the other thing is thinking they're a bit kind of childish <coughs> and they're, 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 they've got, you know, they're, they're, they're repressing their, their, you know, their, their unconscious mind, um, oh, which is kind of strange. <laughs> well, that he, was the point. Yeah. We're all repressing he, our unconscious mind, yeah. but we're also trying to get hold of it. He hasn't even started yet. Non-repressive. Mm. But no, but the, uh, there is. I did a lecture uh, at the Freud Museum in Vienna about Freud as essentially an artist, mm. and there's a lot of interesting material that supports the argument. Um, but um, we can't unfortunately go into it here. But he would have been. Yeah, I mean, people think he would have been a great creative writer if he hadn't taken, you know, the road of psychoanalysis. Yeah. His writing itself is... Well, let's face it. He created psychoanalysis. That's a hell of a creation. If you see its impact in our civilization, and we can't even just say our society. So, I mean, it's an amazing creative act. All science, if it's going to ever have any use of be valuable, is creative. The scientist is creative. We have this terrible idea that artists have a monopoly on creativity. In any profession, if you're good at it, you're creative. That's the whole point, really. Hmm? But unfortunately, we have this idea that um, we're passive consumers of culture, and professionals, like us, deal produce it. And everybody else is in this um, uh, uh, kind of role to consume and to... Um, and they're left out of the creative meaning-making process to a great deal, which is a, one form, I think, of modern alienation, is this fact that we try to give our creativity to paid professionals. So Excellent. Freud would have, would have denied that he was an artist, <clears throat> totally denied he was an artist. Well, of course, he had to. Yeah. Yeah.
yeah. Um, so, so Gavin, um, do you think that this this collection of objects that you've got in the exhibition room upstairs is a kind of insight into your into your own mind in a way, your own kind of the way your mind works in a kind of creative way? Oh my God, um, that's a trap. Be careful. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I mean, I, th- I think that they're all accidents, and that I, you know, if it is, it's something that I suppose, you know, I'd be interested in 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 knowing about, in knowing about yeah. as well. I mean, it, you know, like so. So I, I think that was part of the interesting thing. It was it was what happened was I I saw Sigmund Freud's desk with his objects on it. And then I thought, oh well, let's just have a sort of desk off. So I thought, well, I'll just put my desk from my studio. Um, and although in actually in my studio, like I've got a computer on my desk um, and some of the objects, but the, other, but the actual objects are literally on this sort of dusty shelf beside the, the thing. And, and they're not, they're, they're there. I mean, it's edited highlights. There's still some stuff on the shelf which didn't make it. But, um, but, but even the stuff I've got is, is there kind of by accident. It's as if, it's as if it was stuff that I just couldn't, um, I just couldn't uh, throw in the bin, or I just couldn't get rid of, or I just didn't know how to. Or maybe I thought, oh well, I might, I might need that somehow. I might need to look at that. I might need to. It might be like a reference library. Um, but you were, might make, be you were like making a, some kind of a statement. You weren't taking a piss. You weren't saying, oh yeah, this is Freud's desk with all these antiquities, and this is my collection of stuff. You were saying, this actually means a lot to me, these, these various um, things. I was looking at the idea that, that obviously, uh, these objects contained... I, I knew what these objects were. They contained stories I could, I could uncover. Mm. I could start to kind of uh, tell the stories of these objects. Um, and that in itself, like, like, might start the ball rolling and give some sort of impression of of how how I think, or maybe even how how people looking at this table might be able to think. I yeah. mean, it is quite interesting doing a sort of vox pop uh, uh, of people that go into the room and sort of like trying to ask them whether, like, like what do you think's going on here? Um, and generally, I ask the question a bit too early, and most people don't really know what the hell's going on. <laughs> um, but uh, but but then I think you know really like it. it I tried as, as much as possible to also use the use the exhibition room, which is a room um, with a cabinet on one wall, um, which you know. So I tried to use that that the fact of like here's a here's a, a space which is a museum exhibition space, um, and how can I employ the sort of like the the in a way the rhetoric of the museum. Um, Within the process of of making, so yeah, I tried I, to kind of. I, make, I remember we we, we sort we, of site specific. We saw that really nice little book in the in the bookshop. Well, that sort of that was the, just published, wasn't it? Well, that sort of which that, was analysed all the objects on Freud's desk. I mean, it, I had had the idea, I think, but almost like around the time I had the idea, suddenly we went into the shop and they do have a book which is called Sigmund Freud's Desk, and it does examine all the articles on the desk. Mm. Um, in relationship to their stories, where they come from, who he bought them from, and, and kind of like tells you, in a way, like the history of those objects. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you like the idea that by by doing having the opportunity to show this in a museum, you could take a kind of bit of a museological approach to the 
labelling and things, because we did when we looked at them. We, we tried to be very, um, you know, informal in the way that we were... I tried to... I mean, I, again, I think I just tried to... Um, I think I tried to be sort of almost like provocative with myself. You know, I tried to sort of like go, well, you know, oh, well... I mean, I suppose in the same way that, that you know, if you go to a funeral, um, one of the things that happens is that you, you sit down and you think, what the hell are they going to say at my funeral? You know, it's like funerals are f- sort of for for the people attending them. They're not really kind of... It's sort of like there's that weird sense of like, you know, like h- how do we... How do we get a sense of ourselves? Yeah. Um, and I suppose there was there's, there was something of, of like, well, where am I at? You know, um, and also like like looking at I suppose someone that looks at mythologies and looks at uh, looks at kind of like uh, iconographic or cliched kind of institutions. Somehow this idea of that you know the the place where it all happens, just the artist studio, the artist desk, or the artist kind of creative space as this kind of like telltale um, sign is this there's this seat of authenticity as this sort of seat of truth as this kind of like site where where great things happened mm-hmm. um, and in much the same way and much the same slippery way the museum itself is is kind of a, a reconstruction of Freud's um, of Freud's uh, actual uh, 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 you know, of his actual space where he studied. Like, and, you know, like there's photographs of it and then they kind of brought it to London and sort of, re- sort of reconstructed it. So it's mm. a sort of, it's a kind of artifice. Um, but it tries as hard as possible to sort of like, like to instill the idea of, of him just walking out of the room. I mean, I'm always fascinated by those artist studios where they, uh, like if you see Cezanne's studio, they were sort of like Parker kind of an apple there as if he's just, He's just left the room, you know, like he's just busy observing that apple and he just left the room and, you know, he didn't, didn't come back, but the apple's still there. Yeah. Or, you know, like the dust is like, is that the actual dust? I mean, the couch, you know, it gets so kind of like, I mean, recently it got, um, it got, it got taken apart in terms of DNA structure. I mean, it's been so drilled into, um, sort of like from all... Continue, please. Um, it's been so... <laughs> Here I sneeze. It's been so sort of drilled well, it's down one of the into. words you said. I don't remember which one. That I always sneeze. Right, yeah. yeah. <laughs> what Not about that, that idea that, 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 you, that you often um, <laughs> reference art history in, in your work? It does happen a lot, doesn't it? I mean, so much of your work is based around... I think that's so, just because because it seems to me that, that that the reading of art or the understanding of art or art in a space like like the audience brings stuff to it and mm. the stuff they bring to it is like oh this looks like or oh this feels like or oh this this reminds me of and so so the 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 art itself and how you and how you think about art is full of art history and so it seemed to me to just like be a totally consistent um, way of thinking to to use art history in the same way that you might use um, colours or um, or clay or yeah. you know it's like a material it seems to me and it, it sort of somehow it, it almost has the um, that that ability and the flexibility actually I mean some artists are obviously much more applicable and flexible and pliable than others. 
So let's ask Joseph what he thinks about you putting the Wittgenstein, um, you know, mannequin in. in, in, in well, I was, it took me some weeks horrified. to get over it. but um, Horrified. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, I always think, I, it always comes to my mind, for the philosophy of science, theory of models, there are, because I always think, in a way, every artist's work is a model of what art should be. Mm-hmm. Every work, in some sense. So, um, my feeling was, when I was, this is a theory of mine from 40 years ago, but that I wanted my work to be a test, not an illustration. I wanted to go into the world and test its own premises, right? And and failure was part of the acceptable part of that program. It's a question you're saying. Yeah, yeah. That, and so I was always resistant of the things that appear to be illustration. You know, um, I there was a show, Freud show, some birthday of Freud's, and um, it was a, like in the late '80s or when I was working on Freud, and I was asked if I would give something to it. And you had, you know, uh, Schnabel and various artists doing portraits of Freud. And I just said, you know, I'm sorry, I'm just like too serious about this stuff. I can't partic- participate and have my, what I do framed by these kind of, you know, celebrations. Um, when it was the uh, birthday of Goethe, the city of Frankfurt came to me and said, um, we want you to do a big exhibition at the Sharon Kunsthalle in honor of Goethe, something that would be Goethe would feel honored by. It wasn't to do portraits of him in the bath, but actually something that would, you know. And so that's always been, in some way, what I would try. Now, so my first and perhaps superficial response to the um, uh, figure of Wittgenstein standing there I actually thought of the uh, the Jarman film. I don't know why. It came to my mind immediately, and I said, "If the you know the Jarman film Wittgenstein? No. Oh yeah, I do. Yeah, Derek Jarman yeah, did I do. it. Seen it yeah. Quite a well-known film, and um, which was, you know, uh, in a way, the kind of narrative construction and all that was also a kind of illustration. But I liked that, and so what I was basically was having a fight with myself is that if you like the Jarman film. What is your problem with this Wittgenstein, you know, little bit Herod's window, you know? Um, because there's a lot of other things in your show to like, so just let it go, you know? That's one of the great things about the art experience. You can just let it go. So you're saying you would have put, put a kind of quote by Wittgenstein instead of sticking a, sticking a <laughs> mannequin of him? I don't know. Did I say that? I can't, well, you I can't remember already. It. You thought it was too illustrational to, to put a... Was it, wasn't it? Did I get it wrong? You thought it was too illustrational to put a, a mannequin. Yeah, you know, um, there are things to be said, and there are things that unpack the layers of meaning that some the exegesis of this particular this philosopher or writer or whatever's life um, that you might be able to reveal more than the depiction of the, their body. That's sure. all. And, and the depiction of the body was particularly difficult because there seems to be... A, it, yeah, it's a hard job to start there's with. There's only two <laughs> photographs that I could find. Oh, uh, no, I have more. Yeah, okay. Well, reach I'll, out I'll, next I'll, time. Yeah, but you weren't interested in my work, so... <laughs> 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 
Um, but, but but really, like like ultimately, like it, it, you know, it, it, for me, it was you know, it was it was kind of like again, like thinking about like how the museum functions, and quite you know, and quite often, like the museum functions by by doing kind of crude things like putting these figures in. You know, like if you go to the top of the Eiffel Tower, you know, like like right at the top, like right at the hub, it's like a, a little kind of a mise en scène with with um, What's his name? Um, the guy that invented the... I want to call him Manzoni. Eiffel <laughs> and... Uh, uh, Marconi. Marconi. Or oh, Marconi. Top, like, kind of inventing, you know... Like the I haven't been up to that damn tower in a long tower, time. And they're all, like, kind uh. of, like, really quite, like, heavily painted, sort of, like, plaster sculptures as these guys sort of seriously sitting around with sort of real hair like that. And it's like, wow, this is really <laughs> heavy. Uh, in, a, in a kind of way. I mean, it's quite kind of... Um, quite sort of spooky. I mean, and it, I suppose for me, like the, the, the model of the guy, like the guy model thing was, was, was sort of, it always hits me as this sort of like, it's not really a model of him. It's a model of a model of him. And that sounds pretty goofy, but that's kind of where I was, Kind of going with it. The idea that it wasn't. I like it a lot better now, actually, now that you've said that. (laughs) The idea that it wasn't realistic, it was like some kind of like, sort of happy museum kind of model. Yeah, kind of did, it kind of just. Yeah, sort of that, it kind of actually ended up like that. And, um, and then obviously it, it was ludicrous as well to, I mean, to start with, people don't, to start with, people don't know what Wittgenstein looks like. So it's like, who is this kind of weird geography teacher? Where do you get that idea? Well, does does everybody here know what Wittgenstein looks like? No. Hands up. I don't know. What's wrong with you all? That's what I want. (laughs) Exactly. Just because you don't do, it doesn't mean everybody else does. Well, I'm Um, I'm democratic that way. Exactly. Um, And it it seems like, you know, like, again, like this idea, this extension of, like, him, ultimately this model slash model of a model, like just becoming almost like a table or a plinth for an egg. Um, so so it's like the suggestion was to sort of like just present an egg, but to do it with a Wittgenstein-style plinth. Um, and uh, so, so it was the idea of sort of almost like releasing the egg, um, using uh, Wittgenstein as a kind of like as a... Uh, whatever that bit is on the chicken, which does release the egg. Um, Parsons' nose. As a Parsons' nose. He would have liked that. Parsons' nose, basically. Um, but it's part of a series of. And then, of, uh, and then the other one. Contemplating an egg. Yeah, it, it, uh, there, there was another one actually, which is also Wittgenstein, but now he's a wooden. Oh, you mannequin. only need two to have a series. Now he's a wooden mannequin. No, but you've got other figures contemplating an egg, haven't you? Um, you? Not yet, oh, no. Right, okay. No, there's only two so far. Okay. Um, but so so I've made two figures yeah. contemplating eggs, and they're both Wittgenstein. One is him as a sort of more realistic model, um, and the other one is him as a more realistic model of a wooden mannequin of him. Okay. Um, Good. So I, I think it's time now to, to open up to questions. Isn't oh, it? that ought to be hilarious. Yeah. <laughs> um, so does anyone want to ask Gavin or Joseph a question? Why uh, Joseph? Uh, Gavin's the one who needs questions. 
But you're I only I have answers. He just has well, the, the questions. Uh, 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 do we have any questions? Uh, your eyelids are getting heavy. Oh, it's oh, sorry. It's like analysis. <laughs> oh, it's surely someone's got a question. Sarah, a comment. What do you have? You recreated upstairs. You recreated upstairs in a very amusing and um, ironic and self-deprecating way. Your own study and your own collection of objects. But I'd like to ask you. Uh, um, uh, what do you think of Freud in terms of his greatness, in inverted commas, in as much as you're obviously self-deprecating, you're obviously following Dali, you had a quite a bad time with Freud, but you're obviously putting yourself in some kind of um, facsimile position. In fact, it's quite interesting, because obviously your Wittgenstein is a facsimile too. So how do you, uh, what do you think of Freud as a figure, um, in as much as you are uh, posing yourself as a kind of facsimile of Freud with any bathos or whatever that you might want to inject into it, because it's quite a challenge if you think of Freud as a great figure. I mean, I personally I mean, think I, of Freud as a great figure. I mean, I, I, I see Freud really as a, as a huge library of, of writing and books. Um, it's always it always surprises me, shocks me, and kind of like um, kind of is strange how kind of iconic looking he is, though, as well. It's almost like um, you know thinking about like iconography and how and how people say, oh, this person will be remembered or that person will be remembered because they were iconic looking. Like I mean, I suppose in in my world, the, the sort of like the the, the icon, the most sort of classic icon I've used is the Alberto Corda photograph of Che Guevara. And, and I kind of found this as being like this, it's sort of ultimately such a kind of a powerful, specific image of someone at a certain point. And that image itself almost replaces it or, 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 or kind of has uh, now, almost like has identity and meaning in itself um, and, and starts to think about or talk about the idea of... of of the, in a way, like, the density of image, like, that, that image, like, which, if you scrunch it up and distress it and almost destroy it, it becomes more authentic, it becomes more powerful, it becomes better. Like, the more damaged it is, used it is. So this is a picture of someone that's more, the more used it is, the better it is, and, and actually the more used it is. Um, but also, like, the irony within that picture is obviously, Che Guevara, when he was um, assassinated, um, the people around him uh, didn't actually know, none of them had met Che Guevara when he was alive. So what they did was, like, it, when they, they laid him out um, in the, the mortuary, and they propped him up and they tried to make him look like his own iconic portrait. So in death, he was, he was actually a victim of his own iconography. So he was made to look like himself, um, uh, you know, in, his, in death. Um, I don't know if that quite answers the question, but it was quite funny. It's good, though. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Anyone to be continued. Freud. Hi, I just wanted to thank you both. Um, I just wanted to pose a question to both of you, but Joseph, you had said, um, and I apologize, I don't remember what work it was in regards to, but um, that it was fragments of a language that is no longer readable. 
um, and this idea. Yeah, this was the what called I called the hypercathexis work. Yeah, which is a body of work I did in about eighty one, eighty two. But I thought that that was a rather kind of poetic way, and also an interesting way because I think both of you have spoken to work that's sort of making the immaterial material or giving something that's intangible. I'm making the material immaterial. Exactly. But, yeah. you know, either finding an object as a, a vessel to carry meaning or creating an object through meaning. Um, right. And just how that does mimic in some way not only Wittgenstein language, language games as, you know, we all have different ideas about what we're seeing and we have just this one concrete right. form that can speak to that. The famous duck rabbit. Exactly. exactly which shows up in, yeah. in the current exhibition, but also Freud's notion of the unconscious and dreams being sort of the material that comes out of the unconscious. And I was just wondering, um, the role of the artist as interpreter, um, is that the same or different than a philosopher? And maybe you could speak to the idea of whether Freud's dream and Wittgenstein's dream are the same or different. I mean, if you consider the approach, intellectual approach, that all the philosophers of history have had toward the world, it's very hard to generalize, actually, because they're as different as humans can be, right? It was all writing, so I suppose that becomes some causal nexus for somebody. But truth is, um, it's the same. It's, these are human beings in the world and responding to it. And um, I think a lot of uh, the curiosity of existence is trying to unpack meaning from that which is presented naturally, as unproblematically to us, right? So, and that, that's another parallel between the philosophical enterprise and the artistic, right? Um, one of the great interesting things now we'll see is the crisis that's going on in the art world in which the market gets stronger and stronger to fight as the agency that gives meaning rather than the artist. And this, um, if, uh, if this isn't, if the artists don't fight back as the, as the primary pr- uh, purveyors of meaning. Um, and it's all, um, it's all ends up being subsumed within the meaning structure of corporate culture. So that if you want to know what's important, you see what's most expensive, etc. It's a great, um, it's a crisis, and um, that's a change of subject. But I mean, it, but it is it is quite complicated because our like will contain ambivalence. You know, it, it will it will be possible to read it in different ways. It will be possible to for the audience to be the interpreters. I mean, I, I you know, in a way, I think the artists. Um, <clears throat> almost like they're, they, they're sort of more like recognizers. They're sort of like, they get things. I don't know if they've necessarily interpreted stuff. I mean, the, the, you know, part of the process has been that, but maybe it's more like the audiences. And, and obviously the artists themselves are audience as well at some point. Like there's a point at which, like, art, uh, the, the artwork is contained, like, is made sort of by the audience as well. And this is where the market, like, is, it comes in as well, and the market is really—it's very complicated. Like how how art um, how art offers itself and contains ambivalence, and can be ultimately can be um, it can be used, uh, you know, in ways that the artist doesn't 
and hasn't necessarily. But do you get upset if you feel your work's misinterpreted? Well, it's well, it's, it's very very difficult because mm. as an artist, ostensibly you're making art for people who who quite a lot of them um, you 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 don't. You don't. You don't really favour. You don't. You, you don't really think that they're necessarily doing the best things with their money, except for buying your art. Um, the other stuff they're doing with with their money is is not very good. Um, did I say that? No. <laughs> um, you know, it's a sort of like sometimes you might think that you're kind of you're you're doing some sort of job of of kind of uh, of sort of cleaning cleaning up people. You know, you're sort yeah. of you sanitising. Yeah, and or also, you know, uh, you know, or you Providing you might simply be um, a way of them sticking um, their money on their walls, dressed as me, so later on, like they can then um, sell it and make more money. Mm-hmm. Woo! <laughs> Fun, isn't it? <laughs> 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 He's moderate. This guy's moderate. He's, He's a moderate. moderate. He's the one and only moderator. <laughs> Come on. No, I mean, I, I mean, you do see art as being being a sort of way of relieving wealthy people of a lot of money, you know, like helping a service for them. And but do you get upset? You are upset by that as an artist, don't you? I can see that. Um, there is art therapy. I've heard. <laughs> yeah, but that, it doesn't. That's, they do it here, don't they? The Anna Freud Center. Yeah. yeah. Um, um, are there more questions? These yeah. guys are boring the shit out of me. Sorry. Anything else? <laughs> the beginning of the show near the couch. <laughs> it, it actually says that Wittgenstein's interpretation of dreams was di- was completely different from Freud's, but it's never explained in the show what Wittgenstein's interpretation of dreams was. You're in trouble now. No, 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 no. no. Could you just? I mean, I literally, I'm just asking you. Innocently, because I haven't looked it up, what the difference is. To be quite honest, there is a quote which talks about Wittgenstein and dreams right at the bottom of the press release, isn't there? There is, yeah. But But it's not in the show. But really, really, I don't think Wittgenstein really was that bothered about dreams. I think that, that obviously, for Wittgenstein, like, really, like, if you you weren't able to to talk about it, to to sort of logically explain it, to to put it into words... That's based on a very short quote of Wittgenstein, which is in a book called Culture and Value, about three-quarters of the way through the book. But yeah, we had a job finding the quote. Didn't yeah, we? <laughs> <laughs> should just phone you again <laughs> for the pictures, for the quotes. Um, and so I, I don't, I don't really know. I, it, it, you know, we, we did go through quite an interesting kind of uh, a sort of a, a mental cycle when we were talking about the, the situation of the dream um, and whether it was Freud's dream or whether it was Wittgenstein's dream, whether it was the Wittgenstein dream, the Freud dream, um, like exactly who was dreaming, what was dreaming. During the private view for the exhibition, um, I, I employed Sigmund Freud to to like be asleep on his desk um, with his head away so he couldn't actually see that, that it was him. Um, so he was asleep on his desk and he, uh, and he basically spent the whole private view um, sleeping um, happily on his, on his desk. He was having a very private view. He had a very private view, and his private view, in a way, was us. That was his dream. Any more? Have we had enough any yet? Any more for any more? Come on. Aren't you getting hungry? The water's lovely and warm. 
quick one for Gavin. Um, on the outside of uh, Freud's house, there's two blue plaques, mm-hmm. one for Freud and one for Anna. I wondered if you weren't tempted by them at all, given your earlier work. It's crowdy, I mean, <laughs> t- we always think about uh, Gavin to work too. <laughs> <laughs> um, yes. Uh, no. Uh, uh, <laughs> I've been there did that. Yeah, I, I guess I'm trying to sort of a bit move it along. I don't know. <laughs> Although, yeah, yeah, I don't. Sorry, no, no non-answer, but yeah, thank you for that. I mean, I mean, it, it's, um, it obviously is very uh, interesting, the idea of memory, of, of, you know, what makes a memory, how, you, how people remember, what, what makes the difference between something you remember and something you don't. Um, um, you know, ultimately, like, what's important it, it, uh, of an exhibition when you leave is what you can remember of it, you know, is what, what you actually can keep, what, what you get. Um, and um, in lots of ways, you know, like, this, the system of blue plaques is quite fascinating in terms of the fact that it becomes part of a kind of cultural history um, and also a sort of, like, a, a kind of almost, like, abstract memory system. I mean... It, it's it's so often that you that you read one of these blue packs and you actually don't, don't know who it is, um, and that's kind of interesting. I find that that, that you know there's a, here's a memory of something that you really don't know quite how to remember. Can I possibly ask you a question about his monument in relation to memory? Your monuments for mines. Um, well, I've done a few works that were based on the idea of a monument, but I don't. What's your Specific reference? The one in Norway. <coughs> the one I just did. Yeah. Well, that was, without being able to show it and really talk about it too much, uh, uh, it had to do with a commission I had to do a, a work uh, in a town where for over 300 years uh, it provided major amount of silver in Europe. And but mostly the king of Denmark used it to pay for his wars with other countries. Um, but um, and when I went there and I looked around and it, now it's the new Silicon Valley of Norway. Uh, they've they've gotten out of the silver business. All the mines died, but it hangs over the town. I felt in a very powerful way this history. So I did a work which essentially put the name and dates of all the all the dead silver mines. Which doesn't sound too interesting, but the work worked out well, I thought. Um, I also did one many years ago um, in Cleveland. I had gone to the art school there and um, was where the director at a faculty meeting had said I was the, that I was the most destructive freshman in the history of the school, <laughs> which I took as a great compliment. It was a rather conservative school. And... Um, so I ran off to Europe, um, you know, got out of Cleveland. But so years go by, and in the end, I was the only one that anybody ever heard of after. So they ended up giving me four shows at once in some centennial of the city. And um, the irony, great irony, of I lived in this building with three guys, and there was this 19th century statue in front. Although we may have all been art students, but who looks at those things, Right. And so one day, it's a nice little story. One day, um, I had a friend. I'm like eight, 19, 18. 
I had a friend who um, was black, and he came to pick me up. I had been active in civil rights, um, and um, I was very, very proud that I have a black buddy, frankly. And so we're, we're, we're going out of the door, and there is this statue I never looked at, and gold leaves were all over the ground around it. And we said, what the hell? And we went over and we looked at it, and it turned out that it was a statue of my great-great-uncle, who was the national hero of Hungary. And um, I didn't know. I was living there for nearly a year uh, with that statue, and I didn't know. So, so we're walking along um, Euclid Boulevard, the, my pal and I, and um, a parade's coming. And so, you know, but we're sort of paying, there's a parade, yeah, but we weren't that interested, really. And we were horsing around fighting about something and kind of rustling as the parade went by. And they started yelling, nigger lover, at us, because I was a white guy with this black guy, and we were clearly friends. And I looked up, and it was the Kasuth Day Parade. They were there honoring my, and I'm the direct descendant, my great-great-uncle. So um, the the irony of this, the, well, is it irony? It's that, if it's that heavy, I don't know. But paradox, just be clean. The paradox of it was quite tremendous. So when I got invited <coughs> to do a work, I did something called the Monument Monuments, and I went to every one of these statues in Cleveland, sort of compensating for the fact I ignored the one in front of my building, and did um, uh, sort of labels uh, for each one. And these labels, including the one, of course, in front of my house, uh, were all over the lobby of the Cleveland Museum of Art. And, um, uh, and of course, there was a brochure, because I wanted the city of Cleveland to know what they did. I mean, of course, this was like 25, 30 years later, but anyway. Uh, revenge is best served cold, as somebody <laughs> said. Well, anyway, so that was that. Was a, there's a lot more to say, but I don't want to. I don't want to take up Gavin's time. Two hours count, man.